Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 45. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, 
I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, the stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Father, for revealing these things to us, O Lord. We thank you, O Father, for loving us so much that you've put your word in our hands, and that you've done so much more than that, O Father, you've put your word in our hearts. So, Father, as we come to you this morning, we pray, O Father, 
that you would continue that work, O Lord, of putting your word into our hearts, opening your words to our mind, O Father, that we would gain understanding, we'd gain the perspective that the Holy Spirit desires to impart to us through this passage of Scripture. So, O Father, for this, we, we require the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray, O Father, that you would work mightily, that the Holy Spirit, that he would work in our hearts, that he would work in our midst, even now, as we look to your word, and we look to your word, O Father, with anticipation, that you indeed will speak to us. So, Father, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We should not be able to read Daniel 2. I mean, even if we're reading it quickly, uh, we should not be able to read Daniel 2 and not be struck by the God in heaven who reveals. Uh, the God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And last week we began our, our study of Daniel 2, and uh, there we see that Nebuchadnezzar has this troubling dream. And uh, he calls the world's leading experts. If you were here last week, you'll recall I developed that. Uh, the wise men were at that time the world's leading experts. And Nebuchadnezzar calls the world's leading experts uh, to the task of telling him uh, what the dream was. Now, uh, we can only imagine uh, this assignment. Uh, if they succeed at this, Indeed, there are great gifts being promised to them. But if they fail, Nebuchadnezzar has made it very clear that they're going to be torn limb from limb. And he's not the guy, kind of guy that fools around about this or kids about this kinds of stuff, these kinds of things. Now we can see the mess that they're in right now. Because as human beings, we simply do not have the faculty to tell another person their dream. Imagine going to work and asking somebody, I had a dream last night, could you tell me what it is? They'd think that you were crazy. What do you mean, can I tell you what it is? No idea what you dreamt last week. And this is uh, similar to the assignment that these men are given. Now, even these, uh, these heathen wise men, I mean, they, they realize they can't do this, and they even they realize that only the divine can do this. And, of course, we have seen from our study in chapter 1 that Daniel and his three friends have been uh, codified into this cast of uh, group uh, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes to make good on his threat to kill the wise men I imagine there was probably some kind of list brought forward and Daniel's problem and his three friends problem is they're on the list and uh, here Nebuchadnezzar is making good on his promise to uh, kill these wise men and that's when Daniel finds out about the whole thing and we're told that Daniel and his three friends, of course, they realize that only God can reveal this mystery. Only God can reveal these things. So what do they do? They go in prayer before the God who reveals these things. They call on God for his mercy. And in verse 19, if you look there with me, we're told that in a vision in the night, God reveals the dream, and not only the dream, but the interpretation uh, to Daniel. And this results in Daniel's prayer for worship. If you look at verses 20 through 23, we see here Daniel is breaking forth in this worship of praise in these verses, especially verse 22. Uh, Daniel here praises God that he's the one who reveals uh, deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. The light dwells with him. He is the God of heaven who reveals mysteries. So you see, we can't 
read this chapter without being struck uh, over and over again uh, by the Father, God, the God who reveals. And of course, that's an important part to Christianity. Christianity is a revealed religion. Uh, we learn that God has revealed his, Himself in many ways. We might think of Psalm 19, which speaks of how creation reveals uh, the Lord God. In fact, Psalm 19, verse 1, famously says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. We think of uh, sunsets and sunrises. In fact, on Friday morning, uh, where we live, there was at one point there was a gorgeous sunrise. It's, it's so caught... Uh, my eye that I called Tammy's attention to it and we sat and had a cup of coffee and watched it. Uh, once in a while those, those sunrises are absolutely gorgeous, aren't they? And there we see the wonderful creativity of God. Uh, what artist could construct such a thing? Uh, what artist could, could fabricate such a thing? And as we're looking up at the sky, you know, sometimes at night we can see some of the stars, although in the Pittsburgh area that's not very often, but sometimes we can see the stars, and we, we look at the vastness of the universe, and it reveals the vastness of Almighty God. And those of us who have been to the ocean, you look out at the ocean, you see the vastness of the ocean. It's vast, and you see the waves as they come forth and beat against the, the beach. And though the ocean is so vast, there's yet this wonderful precision about it. It's, it's so precise that we can determine the times of low tide in the times of high tide with great precision. Why? Because this reveals the order of Almighty God. He's a God of order. God reveals Himself through creation, indeed. And, uh, but God has also revealed Himself through His Word. The Westminster Confession of Faith in, in chapter 1, paragraph 1, reads uh, this way. It says, although the light of nature... And when it refers to the light of nature, it's referring to what I've just said, all of the things that we can see in creation. Though the light of nature and the works of creation and providence uh, show the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave us without excuse. Uh, that is, uh, we're all without excuse to realize that obviously there's a God. We can see that there's a God by everything that's been created. Yet, the, uh, the light of creation is not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary for salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord to reveal Himself and to declare His will to His church, and afterwards, uh, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church, uh, to commit the same to writing. In other words, this is a fancy way of saying that God loved us so much that He went beyond simply revealing Himself in creation, He's given us His Word. He's given us His Word. Now, uh, if we go back to Daniel, uh, here Daniel and his three friends, they need God to reveal this dream, don't they? What happens if God does not reveal this dream, this mystery? They're going to be killed. And I think we can make an application right away. Uh, our salvation, our redemption, our deliverance depends on God revealing to us, doesn't it? We're really in the same boat as Daniel, actually. If we weren't given this word from God, we would, like Daniel, be on death row and be perishing. 
Amen. Now, we might ask a question here. You know, why is God revealing this mystery to a heathen king? You know, I think if, if we were all to get around and have a little fireside chat about it or form a little think tank here and say, well, what do we think, we, what do we think God ought to do? Should he give, these, should he give this, this precious word, this precious revelation, should he give it to an unbelieving king, a, a wicked king, or should he give it to some holy prophet somewhere? I think all of us would probably agree that God should give this message to some holy prophet. It, it's, 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 it kind of raises an eyebrow that God would give this, this dream, this revelation to uh, a, a heathen king, if you will. But I think that God has chosen to reveal the mystery to Nebuchadnezzar because at this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on the planet. And as we're going to see as we begin to look at this dream, as we begin to look at more and more closely at Daniel chapter 2, God has a message for the most powerful man on the planet. You didn't become the most powerful man on the planet all by yourself, contrary to what you might imagine. I have made you that way, I think is the message that God has given to you. Nebuchadnezzar, which brings us to our next point. We're talking about the God who reveals himself. Let's look at the revelation. In verses 31, let's just look very closely at what's going on here. If you look at, with me to verse 31, Daniel is now in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and he begins to reveal the dream to him. He says to the king, you saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Now, here we can begin to understand why Nebuchadnezzar was so troubled, can't we? Uh, we're told that it, the dream was frightening, and all of us have had dreams that were frightening, haven't we? And isn't it amazing how sometimes dreams can be so lifelike and so real that you can wake up, actually, and be up for a period of time, really still thinking that that dream is reality? Has anybody ever had that experience? Raise your hand if you've had that experience. I mean, I think we've all had that experience. So you can, we can get rattled by these dreams, and especially the dream like this. In verse 32 and following, Daniel continues. He said, The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then as you looked, verse 34, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There's the dream. That's the first part of Daniel's assignment, right? Nebuchadnezzar wants to know what the dream was. He said, if you can tell me what the dream is, then I know for sure you can give me its interpretation. In verse 37, Daniel continues now with the interpretation. Uh, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. The arms and the chest, Daniel continues, are 
the arms and chest of silver point to a second worldwide kingdom, a kingdom that will follow. Uh, the belly and thighs of bronze yet point to a third kingdom that will follow. And in verse 40, there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. Now, we'll notice that this fourth kingdom is exceedingly strong, yet it's divided. Look at verse 42. As the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. Verse 43, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And here we see that this kingdom is unstable and the instability of this kingdom seems to be due to the combining of different people groups uh, who simply will not hold together. Uh, they're, uh, for whatever reasons, they will not hold together. Now, if we look at verse 44 and following, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, clay, the silver, the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. God reveals, doesn't he? And now we have the revelation. Okay, <laughs> what are we to make of all of this? Um, what are we to do with all of this? Well, um, a lot of ink has been spilled over identifying these four kingdoms. In fact, uh, if you peruse the mountains of literature that's been produced uh, in, uh, in regards to Daniel's prophecy, you'll see that a lot of ink is spilled over trying to identify these four kingdoms. And in fact, in many cases, that's where much of the emphasis uh, rests in identifying these kingdoms. But here, my friend and mentor, Ian Duguid, is he's very helpful. Um, Ian uh, writes this, quote, At this point, the temptation is to start inquiring about the identity of the four kingdoms in the vision. So he's recognizing that temptation. Okay, who are these four kingdoms? He goes on to say, If the first kingdom is Babylon... Can we also identify the other three? Now, mind you, I mean, Daniel comes right out and tells Nebuchadnezzar that you are the head of gold. So the scriptures are very clear. Babylon is the first kingdom. Okay, Ian is asking, can we identify the other three? Ian continues, some people argue that the four kingdoms are first Babylon, then Media, then Persia, and Greece. While others say that they are Babylon, Medo-Persia as one, as a second kingdom, Greece as a third, and Rome as a fourth. If the last kingdom is Rome, then who are the ten toes? Now, there's really no mention of ten toes. There's a mention of toes in the passage, but not necessarily a mention of ten toes. Um, but if you pursue, you peruse a lot of the literature, you'll, you'll get into that. Uh, Ian continues, he goes, it doesn't take long before we find our heads spinning with a variety of interpretations offered, all of which go far beyond the interpretation and application that Daniel himself gave here. It's important to notice, however, that the passage itself gives us virtually no data about the specifics of any of these kingdoms because it intends to give a philosophy, a philosophy of history 
rather than a precise analysis of history ahead of time. As John Goldingay puts it, in the drama of the story, the description has to be allowed to remain elusive. People miss the point when they spend time arguing who the empires were, end of quote. Now, Ian's point here is, and I think he's, I think he's arguing rightly or I wouldn't be quoting him, uh, his point here is that what God is giving us here is more of a philosophy of history than merely predicting the history that's going to take place, merely than giving us, as he puts it, a precise analysis of history ahead of time. Of course God is predi predicting uh, the future here. There's no question about that. But in Ian's, uh, Ian's position is we're to see this more as a philosophy of history. I think as we begin to look at it this way, I think it's going to make sense. The very question that's before us now is, okay, what, what is this philosophy of history? Well, it's absolutely fascinating. As we begin to dig into this, it's, it's as fascinating as it is comforting. And I think that as we see this, we're going to be joining Daniel in worship. The first point that I would make really comes from verse 37. If you look at verse 37 with me, the first point I would make is it is God who gives glory, power, and might. Uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37 that it was God who gave him uh, the kingdom of Babylon. It's God who gave him the power that he possessed. It's God who gave him the glory he possessed. It's God who gave him the might that he possessed. Do you see that in the verse? Where's Nebuchadnezzar get these things? Where's he getting his glory from? Where's he getting his power from? Where's he getting his might from? He's getting it from God. And in fact, if we go back to Daniel's prayer of praise in verse 21, we'll see that it's not earthly kings who change the times and seasons. If you look at verse 21, in Daniel's prayer, he's praising God because it's God who changes the times and seasons. We see in the second line, it's God who removes kings and sets up kings. We see in the next line, it's God who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So what do we see here? Well, it's God who gives the glory, the power, and the might. It's God who changes times and seasons. It's God who removes kings. It's God who sets up kings. You know, this, this couldn't be more timely. I mean, presently, we're in the very beginnings of another presidential race, aren't we? I mean, the candidates, uh, at least the candidates in the GOP side, have begun to debate. Many people were tuned into the debates, and uh, the candidates are laboring to try to become the nominee. We have uh, similar things going on in the Democratic Party. Everybody's laboring, and, and uh, these men and women do indeed need to labor if they're going to be the nominee. Uh, they need to labor actually um, and fiercely uh, if, they're, uh, if they're going to be the nominee. And, of course, uh, it's our role as citizens of the United States to pay careful attention and eventually to uh, choose uh, the best candidate that we think would make for a president and to take that choice to the voters booth uh, in, the, uh, uh, in November of 2016. But all of that having been said, the one who really will put the next president in the White House is going to be the same one who put the current president in the White House. And he was the same one who put the 40-plus presidents in the White House that were before Barack Obama. It is God who sets up kings. It's God who removes kings. And we need to do all of our parts. God works through the means. 
but ultimately God is the one who is going to be making the, uh, the choice. Now, this ought to comfort us in many ways, not least is the fact that we're not simply pawns on a chessboard of some kind of wicked, power-hungry men and women. It's, it's helpful to stand back and realize that from time. I mean, these powerful men and women have been raised up by God, uh, not for their own lustful purposes, but ultimately for God's purposes. And it's helpful for us to, uh, to know this. And we need to remember it's God who, raised, who, who raises up. And we just think through the Bible for a moment. A couple of examples. We think of Exodus. You know, it is God who raises up Pharaoh, isn't it? And we think of the history books. God raises up Saul, King Saul. It's God who raises up David. And it's God who raises up all of the kings that come uh, through the Davidic line. It's God who raises up all kings. He raised up, and He raises up everyone uh, who is in some type of position of leadership. It is God who does this. And good leaders are a blessing, bad leaders are a curse, but God raises them all up. Uh, the good news is that God is in control of them. You know, it, it makes me think of a, a man I once did business with years ago. He was, wasn't a godly man, but um, he... he <coughs> was indeed a friend. I mean, he, he, not, a, not a real godly man, but he had this saying that he would say quite frequently that I've never forgotten. He would say to me, he'd say, now, Rick, you realize there's a paddle for every rear. There's a paddle for every rear. And I thought, you know, that is so true. Uh, and as we study the book of Daniel, we'll see that even Nebuchadnezzar, who's the most powerful man in the world, he's going to get a paddling here in the uh, before the next couple of chapters are over. And if you're aware of Daniel, you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, there is indeed a paddle, paddle for every rear. God is in control. Sometimes it appears to us like nothing's actually in control, like the wheels are coming off of the whole thing. And it's good for us to remember that. Now, secondly, we see the ongoing lust for worldwide domina domination. If you look at the dream, you look at the kingdoms that are in the dream, they're all worldwide kingdoms, aren't they? All four kingdoms are worldwide kingdoms. Here we see that, that lust for worldwide domination. And listen, you'll notice that all four kingdoms make up a statue. A statue of what? A statue of a human being. Isn't that interesting? What's that saying? It's saying far more than simply that uh, uh, this is the rise and the fall of Babylon. This is the rise and fall of whatever the next kingdom is. Medo-Persia is my personal position on it. The rise and fall of Greece. That's my personal position on the third kingdom. And my personal position on the fourth kingdom is Rome. The rise and fall of Rome. Much more is going on here than that. What is it that's going on here? Well, this entire statue speaks of the disillusion of all of these efforts, if you will, and quests to dominate. And we might put it another way, which I think hits closer to home. This statue speaks to the disillusion of man's quest to want to try to be something apart from God. Because that's what they all have in common. And that is indeed the disposition of us as fallen human beings apart from God's grace. We all want to be something. We all want to be somebody, you know, apart from God. 
and even as we become Christians. Many of us are still wrestling with that, aren't we? We catch ourselves. What am I doing here? What am I doing? Why am I working so hard at this career? Why am I working so hard? Why am I working so hard? What's the real reason I'm working so hard? I'm trying to be somebody. Trying to be somebody. Trying to be somebody apart from God. Instead of taking in and drinking very deeply of who we are in Christ Jesus, and in, instead of drinking deeply from our identity in Christ Jesus as a child of God, as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Jesus, oftentimes when we look at our minds and we look at what we're doing, what are we trying to do? We're trying to make a name for ourselves. Thirdly, we see that no earthly kingdom lasts forever. They rise, they reach a peak, they decline, they fall. The United States is no exception. It's no exception. Fourthly, we see regress. Let me explain that. I think the, the statue explains it quite well. Um, let's go over it. I mean, the head is gold, right? With the head of gold. The arms and chest are silver. Uh, the belly, the thighs are bronze. The legs are iron. The feet are partly iron, partly clay. Now, let's think about these metals. Gold is the most valuable by, by far. I mean, when you're, you're watching the news, you know, no one ever breaks in with a commercial and says, uh, uh, come and buy your iron. Uh, we got iron for sale, and this is what I'm doing. Uh, we sell iron. You, you know, you don't, no one buys iron. They buy our gold, don't they? Gold's the most glorious of the metals. It's the most precious of the metals. It's uh, the most valuable of the metals. And we know that Babylon is the gold, the head of gold. Now, the next kingdom is made of silver. Silver is also pretty nice too, isn't it? Once in a while you'll hear people talk, well, buy, buy silver to hedge against inflation. Buy silver, you know, everyone's buying gold. Come and buy silver. That's okay. Silver's good. Silver's good. Many of us have jewelry made out of silver. Some of us have, have uh, silverware made out of, uh, out of silver. After all, it's called silverware, right? That's the silver part. Most of it's not really silver. That's a story for another day. What about the next one, bronze? The next one's made out of bronze. Bronze is good. Bronze is good. Not as good as silver. You know, if you give somebody a gold ring, they're not going to complain that you didn't give them a bronze one. But still pretty nice. What about iron? You see what's going on here? The first kingdom is more glorious than the second kingdom. It's more glorious than the third kingdom. It's more glorious than the fourth kingdom. And it's not that there aren't positive things going on down the chain because we'll notice that the, the kingdoms, if we, if we compare the fourth kingdom to the first kingdom, the fourth kingdom is much stronger, isn't it? It's very strong, but it's divided. There's nothing said about the first king being divided. I think we can learn from there that the less divided we are, the more glorious we are. The more divided we are, the less glorious we are. And of course, we can, we can glean simply from the Trinity there, can't we? Who is the most glorious one in all of the cosmos? It's so Almighty God, and He dwells in perfect unity, Father, Holy Spirit, and, or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this perfect unity. And we think of 
uh, Satan and his entourage, you want to talk about chaos and division. So what's taking place here? Regression. As each kingdom comes and goes, each kingdom comes and goes, each kingdom comes and goes, we're led to believe we're making progress. And in many cases, we, we might be making progress. I'm really thankful today, especially when I, I read uh, accounts of the 19th century, the 18th century, the 17th century. I mean, how would you like to have your appendix removed in the 17th century? I'm really thankful for the advancements of modern medicine. You know, that, uh, you know, you go in to have something like that done and, uh, you know, there's no ether bottle and there's no leather boot to, to, to bite on, you know. I'm really thankful that we've made progress here. But in terms of glory, are we more glorious than Babylon? That's uh, not according to the Word of God. We're let, we, we, can, we increasingly become less glorious in spite of all of these voices that are trying to convince us that we're moving forward. The Word of God teaches us that where rebellious earthly kingdoms are concerned, we're really moving backwards. <laughs> There's a lot of things, other things I wanted to cover in this message, you know, and it's just not time to do it all, you know, but I, I was chuckling as I was, as I was really jotting this down yesterday. I was thinking, boy, if we stopped here, this would really be a, <laughs> this would be a terrible place to stop, wouldn't it? Um, this is kind of gloomy. If this is all there was to our text, it would really be gloomy. But in fact, we haven't really even started to talk about the central part of the message. Look with me back again to verses 34 and 35. Uh, Daniel says to the king, he says in your dream, verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then he says that these pieces, they're broken into such small pieces that the wind is able actually to, to, carry, to, to, to carry them away. And to carry them away in such that there's not even a trace of them left to be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And if you look down with me to verses 44 and 45 where Daniel interprets that, he says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation sure. Okay, let's ask our question again. What are we to make of this? What are we to make of this? Well, we see there's a stone, right? Not cut by human hands. It strikes all four of these earthly kingdoms, crushes them to such a degree that they're reduced to nothing. Okay, what are we to make of that? Well, this is what we're to make of that. The stone not cut by human hands is the kingdom of God, right? Now let's shine the light of the New Testament down on this. And let's think of the ministry of Jesus. As he embarks and begins on his earthly ministry, what does he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. Or in fact, what he says is the time is fulfilled. 
and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And later in the gospels, Jesus says, you know the stone that the builders rejected? It's become the cornerstone. Now when he says that, he's quoting from Psalm 118, isn't he? But the imagery, the imagery of this, Daniel 2. Jesus is the stone. Because Jesus goes on to say it's the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone, not cut by human hands, is none other than Christ Jesus. Okay, what are we to make of all of this? All earthly kingdoms and Kings are transient, aren't they? They're like a big oak tree. They're here for a time, and they do indeed have a certain glorious aspect about them. Oak trees are really cool. You know, you can put a tire swing in an oak tree. You can put a tree house in an oak tree. And oak trees last a long time, some of them, don't they? But none of them last forever. They reach a peak. They rest in their peak for a period of time then they decay, don't they? A lot of times they rot from the inside, and they rot until the point that the wind blows them away. We've all seen oak trees like that, haven't we? It's earthly kings and earthly kingdoms, but the kingdom of God is everlasting. It will outlast them all. In fact, as these kingdoms come and go, these, because these oak trees grow up and fall down and grow up and fall down and grow up and fall down, the kingdom of God is inching its way closer and closer to the consummation, the full consummation, isn't it? We can think, you know, for a moment how comforting this would have been in its original context. Imagine being an Israelite carried away from Jerusalem off to this strange land and having to serve this Nebuchadnezzar, this capricious guy, that one minute he seems to be okay, the next minute he's tearing his limb from limb. Now, those guys, you've got to be careful with guys like this. It would really be comforting to know that God's in control of him, that God's in control of all of this. I can imagine there were a lot of Israelites that said, man, the times are a-changing, the times are a-changing, the times are a-changing. Just like there's lots of people today saying the times are a-changing, the times are a-changing. The times are changing. You know, I had a conversation with, with a, a one of you, I think it was, I think it was here, uh, maybe it was Wednesday night or last week, I don't remember when, when I was telling you a story about myself when I was in, in the, uh, I think it was in maybe fourth grade, I was paddled by the teacher in the front of the class. I think it might have been with Alex I had this conversation. And you were looking at me like, what? What? Yeah, man, I was in the front of the class. I had to put my hands on the desk and bend over like this, and I'll tell you what, that teacher went to town with a ping-pong paddle. That's like unheard of. You don't do that. Or where I, when I went to school, you did that. And uh, you want to know the truth? I really deserve that. I, I don't think, I, I remember when it was happening, it didn't seem like anything kind of strange. It was kind of embarrassing. It didn't hurt. It was humiliating more than anything, but I do remember giggling and laughing through it. The, the teacher wasn't hurting me, uh, although we had a custodian. His name was Bernie, and when you got called down to Bernie, that was a little bit of a different matter. But Bernie was never abusive. 
He was never abusive, but he had that big paddle with the holes drilled in it, you know. Times have really changed. You know, if I, if I might just add just a little bit of commentary about that, you know, we were under control back then. I know there was abuse taking place, and I'm not talking about abuse. We've, we weren't being abused. We were being kept in line. It's out of control today. Times have changed. You know, my own short lifetime. Times have really changed. Times are changing. They've really changed over the last few years. And many people are saying, they're looking back to the old days. What about the old days? 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 The old days are gone, everyone. We need to remember the old days are gone. But we also need to be comforted by this fact. It's not presidents, ultimately, or senators or congressmen and women who change the times and seasons. They're part of the process. But it's God who does this. It's God who does this. And as we look around, it's painful for, to watch our culture go in the direction that it's going. It's painful to watch. It's painful for me to watch. It's painful for you to watch. But as we look around and we see this, we really shouldn't think anything strange is happening because re history is simply repeating itself. Let's think about this Daniel chapter 2, this philosophy of history of the Museums. I think Ian's spot on here. As we begin to apply this, we get a lot of comfort from this. History is repeating itself. Nations rise, nations reach their peak, they fall. I don't know what's in the future for the United States any more than anyone else here does. Maybe we could reach another peak. I don't know. I don't think it looks good for that, and I don't think you think it looks good for that. But rather than reminiscing about the old days that really had their own problems anyways, because there were old folks back in the old days that were saying, hey, I remember the old days. Okay. You look at some of the pictures from the real old days. Like you go to Cracker Barrel and you look at some of those pictures from the Elizabethan era and early uh, turn of the 20th century. Is anybody smiling? There's lots of things we could say that were good about those days, but there's lots of things we could say that were bad about those days as well. Nobody's smiling. There should be some kind of cue there. Well, the fact is here, our hope doesn't rest in a new, improved earthly kingdom. I, I hope that we're getting from this that our hope ultimately doesn't rest in earthly kings and earthly kingdoms. People in the church are going to talk about this presidential election like everything hinges on it. And I'm not saying it's not important, but I'll tell you what everything hinges on. Like I said last week, I think it was. If America wants, if America wants to be great, we need to choose the right God. We need to choose the right God. And it's our natural inclination to try to make heaven and earth here, but our hope doesn't rest in a new and improved earthly kingdom. Our hope rests in the kingdom of God. And in fact, that's the title of this morning's message, in case you're wondering, what's the title of all of this? Well, I'll give you the title so you don't have to wonder. The kingdom of God, our hope and comfort. The kingdom of God, our hope and comfort. Is the kingdom of God your hope and comfort this morning? 
Let me ask you another way. Is the king of the kingdom of God your hope and comfort this morning? And let me still put it yet another way. Is Jesus your hope and comfort this morning? That's the question. Heavenly Father, O Lord, we thank you that you're the God who reveals, and we thank you for the revelation that you have given us, Father. And we thank you that you have revealed to us, O Father, what you reveal to us everywhere in the Bible. And so, O Father, you are assembling a great kingdom, a kingdom that will outlast all earthly kingdoms. You have coronated a king who is everlasting. You have uh, uh, set all of these things in motion, O Father, and they cannot fail. So, Father, as we drink of this, as we think of this, O Father, we do uh, uh, lastly ask ourselves, are we in the kingdom of God? Are we in what's eternal, or are we simply a citizen of what's passing? So, O Father, communicate to us, communicate to us, O Father, to each one of us, and give us that assurance, O Father, that we're in the kingdom of God. And if we should discover that we're not in the kingdom of God, O oh, Father, we ask for faith and repentance to bring us into the kingdom of God. So, Father, we look to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I invite you to stand and sing our closing hymn.